Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy. Hello, and welcome to episode 5 of 119, a Twin Peaks podcast. As always, I am Nick, and I am joined by Dylan. How are you this morning, my friend? Not bad, dude. How you doing? Pretty good. Coffee is flowing. Ready to get into... Uh... I got a coffee, too. Oh, wow. This is so appropriate. I think this means that we're real Twin Peaks podcasters now. I know. I don't have any donuts or pie, though. So... Oh, okay. Never mind. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we're here to talk about uh, a pretty great, I would say, uh, maybe even a little underrated episode five of twin peaks the return yeah this is one of my favorite episodes i think i'd have to say really it has some of my favorite moments for sure yeah definitely yeah we'll get into yeah it. i think i think i have to agree with you because i never really thought about this as one of the better episodes but when i actually went back and rewatched it for this and, and looked over my notes i saw that there was just a lot of stuff that i was like really really fond of so yeah, we're excited to, to dive into this one. Uh, before we do that, though, we do want to remind people that they can write into us. They can give us feedback. And the way that they can do that is to email us at 119podcast at gmail.com. And uh, in fact, we actually got our first response. We are a little bit ahead of schedule, so... If you email us, it may take us may take us a couple episodes to get to it, um, but we we will get to it. Um, so yeah, Dylan, you want to go ahead and read it? It would be my pleasure. So this message is from Dan. Dan says, "Hey guys, I'm enjoying the first two episodes so far. You guys definitely have some good content and are able to get critical without getting too nitpicky. Anyway, it sounds like you might not have read the final dossier by Mark Frost yet. Yep, that's true." Uh, there's a lot of content in there that may help shine a light on some of what you've already discussed, as well as upcoming plots. In particular, I'm speaking of the relationship between Bob slash Beazelbub and Judy slash Jowday. You reference Judy as possibly being the mother of Bob, but from the book, it sounds like they may have more of a brother-sister relationship, Bob being the male version of a demon escaped to Earth and Judy being the female. If this is the case, I believe that the mother slash the experiment can be viewed as more of another level of evil above them, possibly the personification of all evil itself. Uh, keep up the good work and look forward to the next episode. So there's definitely a lot of valid stuff in there. Uh, I have not read the final dossier. Nick, I know you have not either. Mm, uh, that is um, incorrect. I have read the final dossier. I thought, oh, you have read the whole thing. Okay. I personally am can totally ignorant to like even the connection of Bob to Beelzebub, um, or just like it's the devil mythology. I didn't know about any of that. Uh, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, like I really only made the connection between Judy and Mother. Um, it, it was almost just like a leap. It was like, okay, well, who is who is like the clear like mother of evil in this show? Uh, the closest thing we get to that is Judy. Um, and also since you see Bob sort of spawned from her being in part eight, uh, was really, that's all I'm going off of with, uh, 
like sort of like with this reference to that maybe uh judy is the mother of bob or a some sort of patron of bob or or i'm sorry bob is a patron of her um but honestly anyone's guess is as good as mine and i'm not willing to uh speak declarative what's that word declaratively declaratively Mm -hmm. i have no declarative statements about this so um the only thing i would say that is that i feel like if the mother of the experiment is just another level of evil above them um it i I just feel like there would be more of a it would be less opaque and i think that the idea or the character of of judy would be would be spoken of more like Bob is spoken of. Bob is spoken of like as an entity that you can kind of uh, put your finger on in a sense. Whereas Judy is this, uh, again, more of like an extreme negative force. Uh, And part eight to me just seemed like the uh, emergence of an extreme negative force into our world. Um, So that's where I drew that connection. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Nick. Having read the final dossier. Uh, Yeah, so here's here's the thing generally about the final dossier and the secret history and all of the mark frost related um writing that that uh that we have um i i have a really hard time accepting a lot of it as canon <laughs> I, know, I know that there are people who who do um and i get it because mm-hmm. he is the co-creator of the show to a certain extent um but here here's the thing all this stuff that uh that dan mentioned and and first of all i'll uh thank you dan for for writing in uh i i do appreciate that all this stuff about that's in the final dossier with judy being a sumerian demon and bob being like the equivalent of beelzebub or literally being beelzebub like beelzebub um right to put it bluntly i just think that that's kind of dumb i don't i I don't really like it (laughs) um and i highly doubt that david lynch would approve of any of that and at the end of the day david lynch for me is the he, he is the auteur of this show so look no disrespect to mark frost but I just, th- this whole idea that Bob is like, it's a devil, Beelzebub, and whatnot, it's just, I don't like it, and I don't really read into it as canon. To me, the one thing that I do find his books useful for is just to sort of gain maybe a little bit of insight into things that were already hinted at in the show. Like, for example, mm-hmm. Sarah Palmer being the the little girl from part eight that was something that a lot of us had sort of inferred but the final dossier makes it explicit you know same with uh mr c's criminal empire and all those details and the extent of it it sort of goes into a little more detail about that um and and those are those are concepts that we get in the show but i i think that we can use frost books to um just to sort of give us a little bit more insight as to where he and Lynch were, were going with that stuff. Uh, that said, there's no way <laughs> that Lynch uh, would sign off on some of the stuff that, that Frost presents in the books. Uh, otherwise, they would be in the show. And I think that based on what we see in the show, 
it's just it makes more sense for me for judy to be the um the originator of bob so um yeah i don't know i see what you're saying here and you know a lot of people uh really really do take the the frost books as gospel and i understand why but uh i i personally don't and that's that's just kind of my feeling about it yeah i feel like i've read somewhere that david lynch hasn't read secret history and probably hasn't i also read that he didn't read uh the secret diary of laura palmer written by his daughter (laughs) (laughs) yeah she Um, said that it's kind of wild it it seems to me as if he has his own maybe not even ideas about what things are or what things mean in the show he just gets these ideas and then i think mark frost um obviously a co-creator is sort of fleshing these ideas out in these books um which is cool and i'm if 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 you read these books and you gain a sense of satisfaction from sort of learning about the minutia and like the details uh, that aren't on the show then good and i'm glad and i'm like genuinely happy that you're deriving entertainment and from like these these books me personally the like i hadn't read the final dossier literally because you told me that donald trump ha- gets the owl cave ring <laughs> right. and i was just we, like huh we've talked like... a little bit about that before and also and also sorry to cut in but there's a little there's there's a little more detail there about the bob judy relationship in the final dossier that pretty much states that if if Zhao Day and Beelzebub were to meet, then it would be the end of the world, you know. And that's just like, oh, okay. and that's just that's just way too pat and cheesy for me. I don't, I don't like that. Yeah, just not that I am. Um, I'm not rejecting the books. I am not uh, trying to discredit them. They're just not really factoring into my analysis of what I'm seeing on the screen. Um, I'm good. I think that's probably how I'll proceed for the rest of this show too. Um, not to say that you shouldn't continue to write in and and tell me why I'm dumb. Uh, I very much would love that. <laughs> yeah, uh, as as uh, people listening can probably tell, I'm not really a big fan of the books. But the way that Sabrina Sutherland, uh, producer of the show, has put it is like the books are Mark Frost's Twin Peaks. TM. You know what I mean? Like. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's 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 his it's his vision, but like I said, to me Lynch Lynch will always have the ultimate word on this stuff. So um but yeah, I think I think despite that, the the sh- I don't think I'm not sure that the show reads any differently depending on whether you have Dan's interpretation or, or my interpretation of or your interpretation. I think we all sort of uh get this general idea that there is a relationship between these two evil entities right so yes i agree <laughs> okay and that relationship is uh probably intentionally undefined on the show yes yes precisely or at least yeah all right so yeah like you said um feel free to write us in thank you dan for for doing so and uh without any further ado let's dive in to twin peaks the return part five case files Cancer, leukemia, autoimmune disorders, pulmonary embolism, warts, psoriasis, eczema, cardiac arrest. Where are the cops when we need them? Anorexia, 
body image bullshit, microbial toxins, bacterial toxins, environmental toxins, our air, our water, our earth, the very soil itself, our food, our bodies poisoned, poisoned. So we open here, we see the hitmen that have been hired to kill Dougie, a.k.a. Cooper. And we see this character, Lorraine, who is apparently put in charge of overseeing the comings and goings of the hitmen and is responsible for essentially making sure that the hit on Cooper goes through. And one thing that I just want to point out here is that she has a she has a theme song, weirdly enough, that plays during this scene and also uh, a scene that I think happens in the next episode where she's killed by Ike the Spike. And um, I actually, mm-hmm. I don't, man, I've, I've lost the, uh, the title here. Do you have it in your notes? I think I wrote it down there. Yeah. Uh, Blunted by Conejo or Con- Conejo. Conejo, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of a... Uh, an interesting departure from what we normally see in, in Lynch stuff. It's more of a more of a hip hop vibe. Yeah, I I uh I love this this shot too of her sitting there picking her nails while this this really cool beats playing in the background. Um, I didn't I didn't know how to read the tone of this of this song or like how this song sort of like altered the tone of like what to me was a very tense creepy shot of uh this like very nervous woman but uh i je- i really love this song i think it's got like it's such a cool snappy groove um and i didn't know it was called blunted but i'm, I'm like really happy that it is <laughs> yeah i had to do a little bit of digging to uh to find out what it was um but yeah it's it's cool mm-hmm. i enjoy it and uh one interesting thing about it is that it is actually diegetic to the scene because when she's talking on the phone with the hitmen, you can hear the song playing over the phone, which I just think is really weird, right? Like it's you mean like it's coming out of speakers? Yeah, like her... it's meant yeah, we're meant yeah, to yeah. believe that she's actually playing it in the room that she's in, which just does not right, which just does not does not vibe at all with with uh with what she's got going on. And like I said, we hear it again yeah. in the next episode. So yeah, that was just a, a weird little little detail that i thought was was notable this episode drips with style i think and and like more so than a lot of the other ones um and i don't i i feel like you get that right away with this scene like there there's such a style to that um to the just just this one scene with that song playing and just juxtaposed with like the nervous energy that she's putting out there um i think we kind of see that come back in a lot of other scenes yeah, absolutely. And this is actually a very music-heavy episode as well. Like, there are mm-hmm. quite a few songs that uh, we're going to talk about here. Um, so, yeah, she has a big bruise on her face. And we can maybe assume that she's being coerced, coerced into this. She doesn't really seem like a willing participant in this whole plan here to kill Cooper. S- safe to say? Mm-hmm. Um, no, she seems as if she's... And I think from what we know, she is sort of like down the totem pole of people like the further up from the assassination you get, uh, you get the more untouchables like Mr. C and then 
what's his name? The guy behind Winkies. Oh yeah, um, um, Duncan Todd, Mr. right? Duncan Todd, and then Duncan Todd tells this other person to give this, uh, you know, the report to Lorraine. So mm-hmm. like Lorraine is clearly kind of like in the shit of it, uh, and yeah, it, I assumed that just like the like the violent kind of uh, energy that she's just like putting off has something to do with the fact that, yeah, she's not necessarily like a willing uh, participant in this whole scheme and is probably could be blackmailed or could have some other reason that she is going along with it. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely get that vibe as well. I, I mentioned in a previous episode that Duncan Todd is actually the one paying her to do this because we do get that scene where mm-hmm. Duncan Todd tells Roger uh, tell her she has the job and like hands him a fistful of money which I don't know why they would pay her if they also need to like beat her to coerce her and um, I was thinking I, I want to give a shout out to a YouTuber who runs the channel Garmin Bosia who does really really great Twin Peaks videos she did a bunch of really fun reactions during the season that um, I highly recommend people check out she she really knows her stuff she recently did a video where she was um theorizing that perhaps tracy from episode one is actually the girl that duncan todd is paying and that maybe Hmm, she was paid to go there and have sex with sam presumably not knowing that she would summon you know this beast that would kill her um which would explain right, right. which would explain maybe why her behavior seems a little suspicious and also maybe why um she comes out to distract Sam just you know at at what just so happens to be the exact moment that Cooper shows up in the box you know because there's that moment where the mm-hmm. security guard has mysteriously disappeared so i don't know i i thought it was a uh, an interesting idea and i just i just wanted to give it a, sh- a shout out yeah, that is interesting. I think the only the only thing I would have that would object to it would be like, why did she show up the day before, uh, and and then try to get in if there was like this like very very specific time and place. Uh, but again, uh, we don't actually hear Duncan Todd say the name Lorraine, right? We no, I don't think we do. So it's just it is either way. Like we're we're this conjecture no matter what. So mm-hmm. that's as good as interpretation as any. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, you're right. And she sends a curious text message through her BlackBerry. It's Argent, and then the number two. Now, this is this is this whole thing is really strange here because we cut to Buenos Aires, Argentina, which I'm certain no one was expecting, and we mm-hmm. go inside this little room, this little basement, where we see a like a box in a bowl she sends the text and then we see the box blink twice now we're gonna see this box again in a little bit and it's never made explicit exactly what it is but i think we can probably infer that it it plays some role in this whole madcap mr c scheme of trying to carry out the assassination without there being any um without there being any trail leading back to him yeah i mean the this that was the, among the most perplexing 
things like the, the the black box uh the first time around i think my first thought that was that it had something to do with philip jeffries right because it is in uh buenos aires right and from what we see later uh with the box sort of shrinking down into what looks like a tulpa seed or mm. something um i wonder if that's it does like is that just like philip jeffries is is like does he have like an object tulpa like this thing that exists in our plane of existence because we do see him again as an object uh in the flying dutchman's so it's not like that's I mean, it's not like anything is unheard of on Twin Peaks, but um, the how that filters into um, Mr. C's plan and like why Lorraine would be sending this coded message and what the coded message does and um, what Mr. C's message about the cow that flew over the moon has like all of that shit. I got no idea, but right. I think there's enough there to to say that there's got to be some connection to Philip Jeffries, who or whatever that is at this point. Yeah, a lot of people do think it, it does have something to do with, with Philip Jeffries because, like you mentioned, um, we do know from uh, Firewalk With Me and The Missing Pieces that Philip Jeffries did spend some time in Buenos Aires. Um, so that that would make sense. However, we also know that Mr. C's criminal empire extends well into Latin America. So yeah, well, like I said, we're gonna see this uh, some interplay with the box in in a couple scenes here, and um, you know we'll we'll talk a little bit more about it then. We go back to Buckhorn and we meet Coroner Constance, played by the lovely Jane Adams. Always enjoy seeing her in stuff. She's a a bit of a stand up comedian. She makes a couple cheesy jokes that don't quite land. Uh, she has a. Uh, a brief flirtation with Albert that I really enjoy in this season. Mm. And she pulls a very curious thing out of Major Briggs's stomach, and that is a ring that reads, To Dougie with Love, Janie E. Now, this, for a long time, was, like, utterly confusing, but I think, I think I have some handle on what might be going on with it do you i mean do you, do you have any ideas i have mine but i'd, I'd rather hear yours first because i feel like they're probably aligned <laughs> okay so yeah i i think so i believe that mr c planted the ring inside of major Briggs's stomach we know that mr c was probably there when major Briggs's head detached from his body just based on circumstantial evidence that gets discussed by Bill Hastings much later. Um, and I think that if we assume that Mr. C planted the ring in Major Briggs's stomach, the goal is probably ultimately to lead the Blue Rose Task Force back to Las Vegas, where if Mr. C's plan had gone the way that he thought it would, they would find Cooper's body and therefore all of the cooper related investigation would cease and mr c would be able to just sort of go about his criminal dealings uh w without any suspicion that that's that's my basic read on it yeah mine's mine was pretty much the same i i definitely 
believe that Mr. C planted it there or had someone plant it there right. to the end of, of, of exactly what ends up, well, maybe not exactly what ends up happening, but it does start the whole process of like connecting the dots um, and getting like the Blue Rose task force to just to be like seeking out Dougie or I think the whole, because I mean, they obviously want Dougie dead. Um, so you're, your interpretation actually makes a lot more sense to me that they were hoping that they would just find his body and then be like, okay, well, case closed. But Dougie, because, oh, yeah, because it would make sense because then they, if they did find the body of Dougie, they would check his fingerprints and find out, no, this is actually it, Special Agent Dale Cooper. Right. For however many years. Right. And they would assume um, they would assume that he had like gone off the grid and lived this whole secret life out in Vegas with Janie E. Right. The thing that um, muddies that is that uh, they had already met Mr. C. We can, or maybe we can, we can assume that that has already happened. Um, so they've already, they're already aware that Cooper, you know, some like, or some form of Cooper is, uh, is around or is back and they've tracked him down. So it is, right. it is still a little bit perplexing, but I don't, I, I wonder, um, I don't know, man. There's so many like rings that show up in Twin Peaks. There are a lot of rings. Some sort of. If I wonder if there is a thematic element to that, because I've this is literally just like this is like like a high idea, but there's <laughs> um, and it's partially based on that uh, something I saw on that YouTube channel called Take the Ring, which we've actually shouted out before. Yep, big shout um, out. I, Take I, the I ring. If you're listening, Mister Ring, please make more videos. Yes, I only have three, and I've watched them all like four times. Yes. Um, but there is, I wonder if there is like, you know, we have like the, this whole theme of completion and completion of cycles and like the giant takes Cooper's ring and then gives it back to him when he solves the murder of Laura Palmer, because like to symbolize this completion, um, Cooper loves pie. Uh, what is pie? Pie is really just like a representative of like a partial, like a partial circle. It's like pie is always in a circle and you cut off a slice. And like each time we see Dougie interact with these sort of these these things like uh, that he used to love in the in the previous uh, in the previous sh- like in the seasons one and two, uh, his like eyes light up like he, he when he sees the pie like that's another moment everyone thinks he's gonna wake up. Um, I don't know that there is any significance to this stuff, but um, I feel like it's at least curious that we keep seeing these like. Uh, and like like circles, like even um, the coffee mug as what's well. What's it called there? Right. Yeah, coffee mug or um, Glastonbury Grove, like the circle of sycamores. Mm-hmm. There is, um, the pool and then of, even the whole uh, fucking the, the, sorry, the uh, the pool of scorched engine oil right there too. Yeah. Yep, and the whole point, the whole fact that uh, apparently Cooper's goal is to go full circle and stop Laura Palmer from ever being killed in the first place. So there's like. I don't know. I don't know that that's like um, that. That would have like plot implications on there being a ring inside Major Briggs' stomach. But I, I wonder if maybe we're supposed to take a little bit of uh, the significance of that, um, and then like because there, there's obviously unknowable stuff. We don't know who put it there. We don't know why they put it there. Um, the best thing that we can do is look at what actually happens because of that ring, and it does lead to. Um, I mean, to be honest, I'm not. I haven't watched it in a year, so I don't remember. But um, it does eventually culminate in um, the, the Blue Rose Task Force going to Las Vegas, which 
seems to be the most logical conclusion we can draw. Yeah, no, I think you're right. The rings in Twin Peaks generally function as like some sort of uh, some sort of link between the the two realities, the uh, the mm-hmm. law the lodge forces and the quote unquote real world. Obviously, there's the owl cave ring, which is the most obvious example. Yep. But you did you did mention um, the season two premiere where the the uh, fireman comes and takes the ring from from Cooper and then later gives it back to him. Yeah, and obviously this this ring is um, you know while it itself presumably does not have any uh, any uh, supernatural powers of, of any sort. It is a link between these sort of lodge forces and the real world, and it is it is helping to influence some degree of of interplay between those things. So I, I think you're uh, I, I think you're definitely spot on there. Um, as far as you, you mentioned um, the fact that the Blue Rose Task Force knows of the existence of Mister C, I think that that is actually where Diane comes into this because. Diane's tulpa, we can assume, was put there by Mr. C to help, basically help guide the Blue Rose Task Force to to Mr. C's ends. And uh, we, like we mentioned in a previous episode, Diane is Janie E's half-sister, or at least that's what the tulpa believes or has been uh, programmed to say. So... If mm-hmm. if Diane is working with the Blue Rose Task Force, then uh, I think Mr. C is probably thinking then that's probably how they're gonna um, how they're gonna find their way to Vegas because th- then Diane is gonna say, oh well, Janie E, that's my sister. You know what I mean? Right. And then which would in you know go ahead. No, I was gonna say and then uh, remember that in part sixteen. Mr. C's plan is for Diane to kill them, uh, which mm-hmm. would pretty much eliminate anybody who knew of Cooper having a doppelganger at all. So, right. you know, I, I think it actually kind of fits. Yeah, it's it worked as like a, a major drive for the mystery the first time around. Um but even even watching it now, where it's like I'm not sure where all the dots connect, you can see that there is like it, it is consistent with what we have seen already and what we will continue to see um, in the in the in the future of the show. But I I I, I think that all of these things uh, that we've been talking about end up with like uh, long long plans that like uh, end up sort of like coming together in the end. Mm-hmm. So more of this like theme of just like very like plans i don't want to get too crazy and like yeah well it's like if you start if you start a circle in order to complete the circle you do have to go all the way around the entire circumference before you reach the the meeting point again so whether that's just me sort of like projecting my own weird theory into uh you know it's like uh it's like i have a hammer so everything's a nail but i don't know works for me yeah um like we've talked about before the degree to which mr c is like this huge puppet master behind everything that happens becomes more and more apparent the more that you think about it like he had 25 years to arrange this this really complex plan involving 
staying out of the lodge and killing Cooper and covering his tracks. And very little of it is made explicit in the show. But I think the more that you look at it, you can see the the basic architecture of his plan, even though there are going to be always some aspects of it that remain a mystery to us. And I, I think that that's I think that that's really cool. Yeah, me too. So yeah, speaking of Mr. C, uh, we check in with him. He's in jail now. And uh, he knows exactly when the food is coming. That's one of his powers. <laughs> that's one of his powers, uh, apparently, is that he knows exactly when the food is coming. Maybe uh, he just has a very strong sense of smell. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's, that's, that's entirely possible. I, I hadn't thought about just, that. Wait a second. Mm, and now food is coming because I can smell the rotten prison food <laughs> from uh, 30 yards away. Yeah, considering what we see later from Mr. C in this episode, uh, no ability that he has would surprise me whatsoever. And uh, so... Yeah, he's got cheat codes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we get a very creepy little scene here um, where we get him looking into the mirror. We see a flashback to the season two finale. We see Cooper's milky-eyed doppelganger laughing hysterically with Bob. And this is just to reinforce and make sure that there isn't any shadow of a doubt that Bob is within Cooper and that he is, um, if not possessing Cooper, then he is along for the ride. Yeah, this mirror scene is in my top five favorite scenes uh, of the return. It uh, it just worked for me in, in a in a sense of like, I wasn't sure if his face was changing or not. Uh, like the first, cause I was watching it like on a TV across the room. It is pretty subtle. Uh, it was like such an uncanny Valley moment. And uh, his voice is different, right? When he says, you're still with me. Good. I think, right. It, there's is some, it? maybe I was just, I don't know. There might not be, but I thought that I didn't rewind it or anything, but I, I thought there was like a higher pitch to it. And it had this, maybe it was just, I was creeped out. But uh, that the shot of of Frank Silva's face just sort of like composite, like uh, almost overtly kind of like transforming like over Cooper's. It's uh, I, I, I've never looked up a gif of it, but I should because I, I, I could look at that every day and just be like, holy shit, it's just cool. And and I think it at the time, like watching it for the first time around. I wasn't certain. I mean, I, I had a strong feeling that Bob was still uh, involved with, with Mr. C, uh, but you don't know for a fact until this moment when it becomes a very, very, very clear fact. Yep. Super effective scene. It's a really good effect. Him sort of morphing into Bob. It's like, yeah, it's just a really, really creepy visual signifier for the fact that Bob is lurking within. It's it's really, really good. I think it's weird, though, because he's, it, you know, he's almost like checking if Bob is still with him, which means that, like, Mr. C is working to what he believes to be his, his own end. Like, at least Mr. C doesn't think he is doing Bob's bidding or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um and that there is a question, at least in his mind, of whether or not he still has 
whatever Bob is to him, like a probably a source of power or, or what. Um, but the, I don't know. I thought the the implication of the scene, um, wasn't totally clear to me. Like, uh, like is Bob motivating Mister C, or is Bob actually just like, kind of along for the ride? Um, I don't think we really get that answer. Yeah, it's purposefully vague. And I think that that vagueness is actually a big strength. And I that's one of the things that I actually really love about Firewalk with me is that it significantly muddies the water as to the degree to which Bob is influencing Leland. Because in season two, it's made very explicit that Leland had no control over Bob and that Bob was just completely... Uh, taking over Leland and using him as a vessel against his will. And I personally find the depiction that we see in Firewalk with me much more uh, chilling and much more rich. The idea that the, you know, where the evil of Bob and the evil of Leland, uh, uh, where the evil of Bob and where the evil of, of Leland blur I think that that's actually really effective, and I think that they carried it through to Mr. C, and I, I really like that. Yeah, because when you first are introduced to Bob, he is a tormentor, right? He's tormenting Lara, and obviously, you know, to some extent, tormenting or had been tormenting Leland. Um, and I don't know if... It obviously doesn't seem like Bob is tormenting mr c uh, obviously more using him as an, intr- an instrument of uh of, of of evil and of all of the, the the dark negative shit that he's doing but is it because like if bob's whole i've always seen bob as like a junkie like a garmin bosia junkie like mm-hmm. just uh, like fuck the rules i'm just gonna go get as much uh, of this stuff as i can and screw my friends that i'm supposed to share it with um also, another ring thing uh, from Firewalk with me above the convenience store. Uh, take this ring that Ivy wed. Mm. Um, that whole scene where you can see the man from another place, sort of like um, dealing with. I think Bob and I thought the whole concept of this was like that they were going to allow Bob to continue to do this uh, awful torment of Lara if, when she dies, she's wearing the ring and can be harvested for her Cambodia. So. If that's Bob's deal and he's just out there to like eat corn and, and be evil, then he's got the perfect thing in Mr. C where like the the amount of people, I think we talked about it in like the first episode or maybe the second one, the amount of horror that that man, if, if you take at what he's doing at face value, the amount of terrible, awful things that he is, like the amount of horror and awfulness that he has brought into the world um, must satisfy that itch that that bob has if that is even bob's purpose but i i think it's got to be some something of like you know he's spawned from uh like a nuclear bomb testing um and we talk about like judy as this extreme negative force it's almost as if like he is representative of like we've talked about before just the evil that men do and mr c is just like the just the prime surrogate for that Right, yeah, it would seem that somebody like Mr. C would be probably the ideal vessel for a uh, Garmin Bosia junkie, like you put it, I, I like that. 
And, uh, you know, maybe we can assume that uh, part of the reason that the Black Lodge wants to get Bob so back is that he's just he's just out there just having a ball, just just eating up all this Garmin Bosia. And he's uh he's not sharing mm-hmm. it with the with the you know the the arm and Mike and all those guys and uh, they're salty about yeah. that. So that's like the scene in Fire Walk with him where Mike is screaming at Leland, uh, at, you know, out like where the all the the car accident happens mm-hmm. and I I just I love that scene. That scene is but he's amazing. screaming at Bob. <laughs> he's screaming at Bob, being like, "We had a fucking deal, asshole, and you're ruining it. What are you doing?" Uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, the idea of a rogue Bob, I think, you know, fits in fits in rather well with with what we've seen so far. Um, if we assume that Mister C was talking to Judy in part two, and she really wants to be with Bob again, it's like everybody just wants to get Bob the fuck out of Mister C, <laughs> pretty much. Like everybody, yeah, like everybody there's... is super pissed off at at this whole arrangement that Bob and Mister C have. Yeah, and there's no clear um there's there's between some factions like um like Mike and the Blue Rose Task Force, they are seemingly working at the to the same end, but what for what seems like kind of totally different reasons. Like there's a lot of players in this that have nothing to do with each other other than they need Bob to be out of Mr. C or Mr. C to be back or just gone from from whatever he's doing. Um it's like there's like a common enemy between these people or entities that may not have anything to do with each other outside of that. Right. Yep. So jail cell scene really good. I think I think we both uh we both find that to be a, a very creepy and and rich scene. So yes, very much. from there <laughs> we get introduced to a new character and we get reintroduced to an old character we are introduced to uh steven the horrible abusive cokehead husband of shelly and bobby's daughter and we also catch up with mike good old mike good old mike i don't think anyone really expected to see mike i didn't at least like if I saw him on the cast list, I, I just, I totally didn't recognize him or internalize it. Did you know it was him until you saw it in the credits? Okay, I'm, I'm going to be completely honest. I did not. I did not realize it was I had him. no idea. It wasn't until I saw like the social media reaction and where everybody was like, holy shit, Mike. But um, it is it is pretty hilarious that we see him here as sort of like type A asshole corporate guy. It looks like... I can't really tell where it is that he works. It looks like some sort of like, I don't know. I almost feel like it's some sort of car dealership or something like that. I think it's a rent. I'm pretty sure it's an, a rent-a-car because I thought I saw an enterprise. Okay. I think it's a rent-a-car ag- like in- agency. Okay. Maybe there's some sort of signage that, that gave it away that I just didn't see. But yeah, Mike uh, didn't work out with Nadine, unfortunately. The uh, Yeah. The, uh, he, the, he was too young and immature. Yeah, exactly. He... um. He had all the good sex with Nadine and uh, her superpowers, and now he's uh, he's leading a more responsible life. Um, good for him. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that he's in this scene at all, or like like this could have been because uh, you know ostensibly like this point of the scene is to show you that Steven sucks. So like anyone, <laughs> anyone could have ripped Steven a new asshole, but 
we uh, we had the distinct pleasure of having uh, Mike do it and and not bark at anyone, which I was disappointed about. Mm-hmm. I wish he would have just like barked like a wild dog on on Stephen's way out of the office. That would have been cool. Yeah, well, I think actually um, before you know, this is before we really see how much of an asshole Stephen is. So I think this scene makes Mike look like the asshole at first because he's just like ripping him a new one about how crappy his his resume is or whatever uh but then it could be that i oh yeah go ahead i was gonna say we're, we're about to see how much of a creep steven is so it it all makes sense yeah i got a very awful vibe from steven from this scene uh i think it's just very good acting and body language he's just made me uncomfortable and i was like this guy looks like a half-baked macaulay culkin that like got dressed with one eye open uh that is maybe on like i just maybe on drugs like maybe not but i was creeped out by him and obviously rightfully so yeah well part of the reason you're creeped out by him is because he's played by caleb landry jones who just sort of effortly effortlessly exudes this like creepy distrustful grimy white trash guy in basically every role he plays like Mm-hmm. He's in uh like he's in Get Out, he's in the Florida Project, he's in uh what else? Like I think he's in Breaking Bad. Uh like he just he consistently plays these these kinds of, of scuzzy characters and he's really good at it. So I think yes, he, he just has that vibe where you, you just instantly distrust him. And uh for that reason I think it's uh really, really good casting. So from there, we move to the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station, where we see Frank Truman get just absolutely berated by his wife, Doris, in a scene that I find both um, kind of funny and also pretty shrill and annoying. It's definitely of cut from the same cloth as all of the, um, the, the Sheriff Station scenes. They have this sort of air of absurdity to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I probably am a little more receptive to it than you seem to be. Um, but I thought that this one in particular has, maybe it's just uh, like Frank Truman's thousand yard stare, <laughs> but again, working as the punchline to, to the ridiculous uh, ranting of his wife. Um, I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed it. It was, it didn't go, it was pretty long, but it wasn't so long that I started to get annoyed. Yeah, I do enjoy her. Uh, <laughs> she has that line that I actually think about a lot where she's like, we're going to get that black mold, Frank. Yep. I, I, the way that she delivers that is really good and funny to me. It's just like, you know, just the whole like nagging wife trope just kind of bothers me a little bit. And we don't really see anything from her other than that. And so it's just like it's a lot of screaming and yelling. And it's just I don't. I don't I don't really get that much from it. Um her her beef here is that she has a leak in the pantry at uh at, at their house and she's really pissed off that she can't afford to pay a plumber to go out there and fix it. She doesn't want to buy a, like a bigger bucket to to collect the leak and she really wants this new rug and she can't afford it. You know, Frost has said Uh, on multiple occasions that part of the inspiration for a lot of what we see in the return was the uh, 
uh, U.S. financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. And this is one of those scenes that I wonder might sort of play into that a little bit. Like this idea that she can't afford the things that she wants and the things that she needs and it's it's stressing her out and it's it's making her crazy and all that sort of stuff i don't it's it's a tenuous connection but um based on the things that mark frost has said i don't think it's crazy to to read into that yeah i don't who knows like the inclusion of certain scenes like this i get the sense that there was probably a lot more of them filmed like there's probably like i wouldn't say that this scene's nonsense but it is if it was not included in the return <laughs> there would be literally nothing different right like nothing at all would be like it would be completely unchanged so i don't know is this like spice is it flavor is it just sort of um is it another look at what twin peaks would actually look like in 2018 like is it more commentary on uh or 2017 is that more commentary on um revivals and uh like yeah you get to see you don't even get to see the the old sheriff and instead you get to see the new sheriff get yelled at by his wife about mold and rugs <laughs> um right yeah this could just be if this one was sorry go ahead i was gonna say this one was inoffensive to me um whereas other ones i think are just completely like off the walls yeah this could just be intended to give us a little bit of an idea of what frank truman's home life is like and we do get a scene a little bit later where we find out that her son committed suicide. So there's that. Yeah. I actually, if for as much as um, I do think the scene was portraying like the nagging wife trope, I did think that when she storms out and goes, you're impossible to, to Frank, I, I thought she was right. <laughs> like, <laughs> He's just fucking stares at her. Like, no matter what, he just, like, lets her rant and then stares at her, doesn't argue with her, and she gets frustrated and pissed. He essentially has the same reaction to her that he has to, to Wally Brando. Just sort of, like... It is, it's, yeah. Just sort of, like, staring at her witheringly until she's done with her whole spiel. Yeah, I think... I don't know, I, I really love... um, What's his name? As an actor? Uh, Robert Forster. Okay, I love him and like everything I've seen him in. I just think he's got this really calm, relaxed demeanor. So like his, even though I thought he was being a dick, his stare just it it, it made me laugh. It's funny. <laughs> it's a great it's a great visual punchline. He's one of those great face actors. Like he doesn't really need to be saying a whole lot to really uh, convey a lot of information. I feel like. Um, right. So we get back to Las Vegas and. We get a scene where Dougie and Janie E and Sonny Jim are about ready to head out the door and Dougie looks over at Sonny Jim who's in the backseat of their car and he just starts crying like there are just tears running down his face and this is a pretty like out of nowhere unexpectedly gut-wrenching moment I think. Yes. It's weird, it, it, and it it definitely sparked a lot of a lot of theories about Sunny Jim. Uh, yeah, there were some interesting theories about Sunny Jim. I, I think somebody said that his blinking was backwards during this scene. Yeah, or something like that. He, I never. He does up a to weird thing. There is backwards blinking 
in this show, like a bunch of characters do it. Um, don't know why. Don't know what the point of that is. Um, Sonny Jim does do this weird thing where he kind of like, it's not a reverse blink, but it's like they cut to him and he's like looking down and his eyes roll back up in almost like looking like the reverse of someone. Like it didn't look like he was raising his head. It looked like a reverse image of him lowering his head. So I don't, I don't know. Um, it's a weird as hell scene and I don't know what to make of it. Well, to me, I I look at it as like the inner Cooper poking out here because I think that Mm -hmm. what Cooper is seeing is a life that he never had. He never got to have a wife or a kid Mm -hmm. or this type of life at all. He's been in the lodge for 25 years. So I saw it as just like the like the the deep-seated emotional life of Cooper just poking through in this in this briefest of moments and I think it's it's made more effective by the fact that we get we get just a just a small hit of some new battle minting music here and I think it's really effective yeah that was the the musical cue I thought gave this scene more significance to me or more weight um I like that. I like that it's um, that there is a, you know, the, the idea that there is this part of Cooper that may actually not even be, may not even be realizing everything we, you, you just said, like in a literal sense, like, oh, I never got that. But it might be that uh, that's, you know, he's just a raw emotion right now in its sadness looking upon this like this site. Um, and we know, do know how much he. Like to the extent that he went to make sure that Sonny Jim had a father uh, and that Janie E had a husband, like at the end. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's that's probably that's got to be it. Um, at least like related to it because uh, it's very clear that Sonny Jim loves Dougie, and and the only thing that I was confused about is why is Sonny Jim so sad in this scene? Um, I don't know. He Maybe he's so just sad? like a kid who's not really excited to be going to school, you know. Yeah, he's normal. So we see the hitman pass by the house that Dougie and Jade were staying in. They just sort of slowly roll past. And then we see uh, these carjackers in just a sweet black car. I'm not not really a car guy. I can't really identify it, but this car is dope as hell. Same. Yeah, I'm the same way. I, <laughs> I know a cool one when I see it, but I don't know what the fuck it's called. And um, they're just blaring some industrial rock from their car here and uh this is actually a a band called uniform which is a band that i actually like quite a bit uh it's it's pretty cool that they're in this show Uh, we get a couple of songs from them in this episode both of them are from an album that came out last year in 2017 called wake in fright so yeah, anybody out there who uh, is really into like super noisy, heavy, dissonant industrial rock, I, I highly recommend Uniform. They're they're pretty pretty good. Yeah, I had never heard of them before this. Um, I think I went in, like last year. I went and checked out like whatever I could find of theirs because I'm not I'm not I don't know a lot about industrial. Um, I just sort of like I was more into like when I was a teenager in my early twenties. I was more into like hardcore, metalcore, and like that kind of scene, and just never really got into industrial and then this song and then the nine inch nail stuff that comes later 
had me checking out a lot of the stuff, which I was really pleasantly surprised. Like I just, I just, I like the, I like the whole thing that Lynch does where he'll like, I, I've been listening to aggressive music for a very long time. And like 90% of the people I've met who like this style style of music are really nice and really cool and not big, scary hitmen. So like, <laughs> I love that Lynch does this thing where he will take obvious tropes and just like take them to their extreme like these are bad dudes in a cool car listening to angry music <laughs> that want to kill you <laughs> and it works like it, it it actually it like hits on that level for me where um it's it's like make believe enough that it's still cool to me you know what i mean because mm-hmm. like like if you want to listen to like the music of murderers you can go and listen to burrs on any time uh it just doesn't have the same effect <laughs> yes yes indeed and uh, it would seem that uh, a group of carjackers might want to be a little more discreet than to be just blaring industrial rock at extremely high volumes yeah. from their car <laughs> as they're passing by. But, uh, you know, what do I know? I've never stolen a car. so This was another thing I was referencing when I said this episode drips with style. Because you have the... It's really cool how you have a very long shot. I personally am a massive fan of long shots. Probably my favorite thing about film in general. Um or like maybe my favorite like directorial decision hmm. is a nice meaty long shot and the pan of the first car down the street as it drives by and then the pan back up the street to the second car and then the pan down the street i i loved it it it, it worked so well yep so continuing off the Las Vegas Janie E Dougie uh plotline we see Janie E drop Dougie off at work and uh she is uh the latest in many people who the latest of many people who have to let Dougie out of a car and then reach over and close the door. <laughs> it's like a really common thing. Like we see Jade do it, and then we see like the limo guy have to do it. Like he has to like physically remove Dougie from the car and then shut the door for him and all this stuff. I just think it's like a just a funny little recurring gag. Oh, I love it, yeah. <laughs> and so Dougie just sort of waddles off. Janie apparently feels comfortable that uh, Dougie will be able to find his way to his office, which, which uh, you know, it seems like a leap, but hey, you know, Janie, she's got other things to do. And uh, Dougie becomes really infatuated with this sheriff statue, which is like yet another just sort of like, hey, might this be the thing that awakens Cooper? You know? Yeah, so... I'm not I'm fuzzy on this. Is that statue meant to be reminiscent of the statue that's on top of the FBI building that we see? Hmm. I'm not sure which statue you're referring to. There is uh, uh my memory is fuzzy, but it's in I think the first time, I think it's right before the the congressman's dilemma scene. Hmm. Um we get this like aerial shot of uh like the FBI building that they're in. Um, and I could have sworn that there is a statue on the top of it. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, maybe I didn't, and, I didn't recognize that. Um, yeah, I'll have to, I'll, I'll have to, I'll check, double check on this, but I do remember there being some kind of discussion about this on the internet. And, uh, I remembered like l- noticing it when I watched part two, but I'll, I'll throw it on again and I'll get, I'll, I'll follow up on this next episode. <laughs> yeah, no, um, there's actually been a lot of discussion about 
what this statue is supposed to signify. I think a lot of people had the idea that it was a reference to something that was in um, Dale Cooper, My Life, My Tapes, the book. I think it's like, I I, I personally haven't read that, but I think people have mentioned that, the, that Cooper has like a, a poster in his room that's like supposed to resemble this. Um... So maybe it's a, a reference to that. I think I also, I forget where I heard this, but I, I remember hearing or reading somewhere that it was inspired by like a photo of David Lynch's father or his grandfather or something like that. Anyways, uh, not totally sure. I think we can just safely assume that Dougie is recognizing this like lawman authority figure and, you know, is sort of drawn to it for for obvious dale cooper related reasons um yeah i mean that's that's the that's the obvious one especially since he you know repeats the word agent in case files later on um he's obviously remembering his uh role as a law enforcement officer so uh i'll yeah i need to i need to go watch (laughs) that flyover shot again and see if i'm see if i'm just making shit up which i might be yeah, and as long as we're on the uh, the sort of uh, this, this little courtyard area outside, there's a really weird uh, structure that's also here, which is like this big white amorphous mountain thing with like all these red balloons attached. And um, yeah, yeah, I've seen some photos of what this place looks like in real life, and apparently there is a it's like a big metallic structure that's just sort of like has all these limbs hanging off of it and maybe the production just didn't have the rights to use that particular art piece is what i'm guessing so they just like covered it in a big white sheet and put red balloons on it which i think is funny that's interesting i I love that shit just like stuff born of necessity (laughs) yeah that ends up being really cool yeah it's just like a really cheap really neat uh, solution to a problem there um, so yeah here outside of the uh, outside of the Lucky 7 insurance building he's met by his co-worker Phil Bisbee who is holding just like a giant tower of coffee I- I've never seen anyone holding this much coffee in my life it's very precarious and made me nervous it's st- <laughs> it stresses me out like how much coffee he's having it must weigh a ton like I'm sure those cups were probably empty on set but like in the real world, I, I feel like I would be like struggling under the weight of all that coffee and just like the heat emanating from it and just trying oh, yeah. not to drop it would just be like it would put a toll on me for sure. I would not be as, as happy go lucky as Phil Bisbee is right here. Well, Phil Bisbee seems like a yes man. So <laughs> <laughs> he might he might be uh he he might be holding in some some like hand pain because he's holding his hands over the top. Cause yeah, that would the other thing that uh that made me wince is when Dougie just drinks it because I'm like, oh my god, that's gonna be so hot, it's gonna burn your tongue. Right? Because I'm just such a, I'm, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I'm like very careful to not burn my tongue with coffee because if I burn my tongue at seven in the morning, my whole day sucks. <laughs> like my day is ruined. It's over. It's like anything, anything that I do that day will be with a burned tongue. Therefore, it will be compromised. So. Cooper. Yeah, it's or, a, it, or Dougie. Excuse me. Yeah, it's an underrated annoyance. Burning your tongue, it sucks. Oh, dude. It's just like nothing. Fucking... Nothing tastes good after that. It's just like it's 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 a mess. It's noticeable. It's just like that's all it is. It doesn't hurt. It's just there and it's noticeable. And I'm weird about like 
my face. Like, I don't know. I feel like I'm more <laughs> consciously aware of something that's like going on on my face than I am, say, like my leg. So, yeah. yeah. And watch your uh, watch your tongue. Yeah. Dougie. Any tongue related ailment is really bad. I feel like most of the time we go on with our life without really thinking about our tongue. But like, if you get a burned tongue, or the other thing I hate is when you get those little like. Um, like those white sodium bumps or whatever like if you eat too much salt or sugar oh canker sores yeah mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah those are... i get those i get those from stress oh wow Ooh. yeah oh boy yeah bad stuff um those are like super annoying to me i think every time i get one i do a google search of like how to remove it <laughs> and there's just there, there are no yeah. answers you just have to like wait it out yeah um and there's so many different uh like they're they're a symptom to like so many different things that it's just like, oh, well, if you pop it, it could spread to your like whole mouth and you'll get these sores all over. And you're like, oh, Jesus, all right. Oh, God. I'll just suffer. Oh, God. All right. So we've established uh, tongue stuff. It's bad. Um, so mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Dougie just kind of reaches for the coffee here. Like he doesn't really uh, – he has no consideration. He just wants coffee, so he takes it. <laughs> uh, Phil is reluctant at first. He didn't get Dougie a coffee, but – He's like, all right, well, I'll just give you Frank's coffee. You know, Frank, another double name here. We get Frank Truman, and then we get this other Frank. Just, just I mean, there's just so many of these. It's crazy. Yeah, and he, he's going to give Frank the green tea in a, in a delightful scene that we will cover very shortly. So they walk through Lucky 7, and they get out to the lobby. And there's, there's like a low-key, very funny scene right here where... Dougie is following Phil and then he just sees this couple or maybe not a couple but just like a man and a woman who are sitting on a couch and the woman is holding a coffee mug and Dougie just like stops dead in his tracks and stares at her (laughs) and like she's just like she's super weirded out like she's just like what the hell and like she just like looks at the guy next to her like what what is this guy's problem yeah the guy is like something wrong with him like what's going on (laughs) it is just the amount of uh the amount of fun that I imagine they've had or that, that Kyle McLaughlin had uh, doing those scenes, I can only imagine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think I feel like the same the same thing is true for this next scene here where we sit in on the Lucky 7 meeting. Like, I, I just, I can't imagine how Kyle McLaughlin kept a straight face during some of this stuff. Like, it's just, it's it's so amazing. So... Um, here we meet a character that will become uh, somewhat important to the plot a little bit later, Anthony, played by Tom Sizemore, who gives a, a really great uh, performance in this show, I think. It seems like he and Dougie, at least the Dougie, like the real proper Dougie Jones, were involved in some sort of shady dealings. I don't... I. I don't really have a sense if it involves like the Mitchums or, or anything revolving around that, but it seems like they're in cahoots on some sort of fraud or, or, or some such uh, nefarious doings. Yeah, there's obviously a connection there that, you know, as soon as he whispers in his ear, like I saved your ass or I covered your ass big time, mm-hmm. um, you're supposed to make something of it. But I don't, yeah, I don't think that it's it's made obvious or it's probably intentionally not made obvious what they're referring to. I think you're just supposed to know that we, we have many hints that Dougie Jones was not um, a straight shooter by any means. He was 
by all accounts a weasel and involved in all of these different sorts of uh crimes petty as they may be mm-hmm. um but obviously was roped <laughs> roped into some shit much bigger than he probably had any idea about. Yeah, and we know that he's involved in with gangsters and he owes money to them and, and whatnot. So yeah, I think I think it's pretty degenerate gambler. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that Dougie Jones was a bit of a scumbag. Um which makes sense because he's I guess he's derived from Mr. C, right? So yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, here, uh Dougie betrays anthony in this scene by (sighs) this is so weird so he sees a green flashing light appear on anthony's face while anthony is telling their boss bushnell mullins that they have to pay out um on this particular insurance claim and that there was no evidence of arson and dougie sees this green flashing light and he goes he's lying which is like the most overt action by far that we've seen from Dougie at this point. And we, ne- we never see this trick again. We never see this green flashing light. It's just in this one particular instance. Very strange. Well, I think it's definitely, a, it must be of the same type of thing that um, was allowing him to hit on, hit on all the jackpots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he also sees little things on the papers when he's uh, going through the, the case files and then actually proves of the like the fraud that anthony was doing later on mm-hmm. um w- w- i have i haven't watched it again yet i've seen being there have you seen being there with P- the peter sellers i have not seen being there okay so it's a it's an awesome film uh about just the, a gardener who is very he's a simpleton he's a very simple man doesn't say anything really of uh of like massive import but he just somehow stumbles blindly into becoming like an advisor to uh like this businessman and kind of just through like happy accidents and like seemingly the world bending around his stupidity and simplicity uh he just like works his way up like the the Washington like insider superstructure <laughs> and becomes this like very massively important figure um and it's in it the the role is is played by peter sellers who is just an absolute master at um at physical comedy and at the um just the just the execution that he shows in that uh film i see like second to none maybe only to to kyle mclaughlin as dougie jones but i think that there's got to be like that's like a uh, an archetype or something like just the just the idiot that just happens to be in the right place at the right time every time and whether we're supposed to read that as like he's getting help from what we can presume are lodge figures based on what we saw in the in the casino um but there's also like stuff that we'll get into even later in this episode um of like just obviously ridiculous scenarios uh like where like by all accounts any normal like human society would have been like this guy needs fucking help and we need to like put him in a hospital bed instead he's getting like hit on by absurdly attractive women and uh and and just had like blindly stumbles accidentally into uh the solutions to many problems uh i definitely am going to rewatch being there and i'll see if there's maybe i had like a conspiracy theory that dougie is like somewhat based on 
Peter Sellers character or at least inspired by perhaps. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll put a footnote there and get back to it. Hmm. Well, I, I gotta watch being there. Cause I, I do love Peter Sellers. Like I, I am a fan of Peter Sellers and that's definitely like, that's, that's a, that's a big hole in my knowledge, especially considering the fact that like, you know, more than one person has brought up Dougie Jones in relation to that. So yeah, I got, I gotta get out. I gotta, gotta get into the, uh, the, the being there game. I think. Yeah, I, I highly recommend it. In this scene, another character that we're introduced to is Bushnell Mullins, Dougie's boss. A wonderful character. I, I love all of the scenes with him. <laughs> he is apparently an ex-boxer, and we see above his desk he has this gigantic poster of himself that says Bushnell battling Bud Mullins. And... I kept expecting him at some point to have to like box somebody, and I'm a little disappointed that we never got to see that. No, you rely on your imagination. And uh, he's pissed off at Dougie for just disappearing for three days, uh, understandably so, and for seemingly calling out Anthony for no apparent reason during the meeting. So he sends Dougie home with just like, an armful of case files to, to look over. And uh, we'll, we'll see all the, the magic that happens with that in the next episode. Dougie really has to piss after this. He, he's got What a cut, by the way. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's so good. He has to piss, and uh, he's snuck into the ladies' room by his very attractive co-worker. Uh, what's her name again? Rhonda. Rhonda, yes. He's stuck into the ladies' room by Rhonda, who tells him that he can kiss her now. Yep. Uh, Basically exactly what she says. <laughs> okay. All right. I mean, maybe we know that uh, Dougie Jones was no stranger to fooling around on Genie E. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe he's maybe he's been working this girl for... Uh, a little while here. Who knows? Just just more Dougie uh, scumbaggery here. Yeah, uh, it's it's the the like level of like how visceral he is about how he has to piss <laughs> is just so fucking funny. <laughs> like the like I laughed at that the first time I saw it. Just like the smash cut, to just him. He's standing in the middle of the room, just like clutching his junk, just like oh, like like just uh... trying not to like just piss himself and then this like super super attractive woman just comes up and she's like hey dougie like mm-hmm. ooh, men's you get her line come with me i was just like what the fuck is going on here and then she's you know i think you could kiss me now and he's just like Ugh. and then he runs into the bathroom she's like okay go ahead go ahead and he runs into the bathroom and is like grunting and like going like uh and she's sitting there just like ah like fawning over it it's so it's so preposterous um (laughs) that i that that was what was made me like okay there is something to this there is something to the fact that like he has such ridiculously good fortune yeah um that's that's a theme for sure yeah well look i mean dougie uh he did lose some weight and get a fresh haircut so i mean what lady could resist that combined with the uh, the classic really got a pee stance i mean i think we all understand that that is the seductive move so 
yeah, I mean, there's there's the the finger gun, and then there's mm. the I have to piss my pants stance. Yeah, and chicks chicks just go nuts. Yeah, I think David Lynch really has a handle on what makes uh, young ladies go wild. Yeah, I should start taking notes actually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hmm. We could all learn a thing or two from <laughs> Dougie. You know, he's he's the only character who gets laid on this show, and it isn't like a disaster or something. So yeah, it's like actually like one of the the greatest sex scenes in in TV history. Absolutely. So, <laughs> um, so yet another new character uh, that we meet, or a bunch of new characters. This episode is just packed to the brim. I, I sort of think of this episode as just generally as a transitional episode. I really feel like this is sort of the beginning of what you might call the second act of this season yeah mostly because we do meet some characters in this next scene here that um we will see throughout uh the rest of the season and become really important which is uh the mitchum brothers played by robert nepper and jim belushi in uh an inspired bit of casting that i did not expect but he is really great in this show yeah, absolutely. Um, for like, I have no real, like, I have no beef with Jim Belushi. Like, I don't. I used to watch According to Jim when I was like eleven, <laughs> and I thought it was a fine sitcom. I have no like people have people like hate him because he's not like John Belushi. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I saw that he was cast in this, I was like, huh? <laughs> like, there were a lot of huh casting choices, but I was like, how are they how are they going to use Jim Belushi? And then as the initially menacing but uh ultimately endearing casino owner uh i think he's just these two uh brothers are some of my favorite characters in the show definitely not from this scene uh but from what we see from them later um but yeah i thought jim belushi did especially in in this scene where he's uh tells the 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 supervisor he's like leave town don't come back i was like oh my god he has that like jim belushi can do that he can scare me. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, he and uh, he and Robert Nepper, they're they're real heavies in this particular episode. But I do really enjoy how these characters evolve later, and by the end, they're just like these real, just happy go lucky guys with with hearts of gold that uh, just love Dougie Jones, and uh, I really enjoy that because that is not at all how they are set up here. Um, yeah, so they, they beat the crap out of this casino uh, manager, supervisor guy, uh, because he let, uh, in their mind, he let Dougie Jones walk away with thousands and thousands of dollars. And they're not happy about that, because they are like, you know, as is the cliche, they are the mobsters behind the casino. And right, uh, in the background here, we actually get introduced to uh three characters well one character and two girls who kind of just stand there um candy mandy and sandy (laughs) i have a lot to say about candy she she's probably one of the characters that has like grown in stature in not just my mind but i think within the community as a whole since the show ended i i think that she's a really interesting character in this scene she kind of does (laughs) 
this really odd hand wavy motion that I really enjoy. It's like she's it's like her arm is like the ocean. And I don't I don't really know what it's about, but it's 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 mesmerizing and uh I like it. I didn't notice that. I'll have to go back. Yeah, like as they're beating up the casino guy, she's just sort of standing there and she's looking at her hand and she's just doing this like this like wavy thing. It's it's cool. I enjoy it. So yeah, like I said, we're we're gonna we're gonna talk a lot more about candy later. From there we get another appearance of the one one nine lady. And uh, she's passed out, uh, as junkies tend to be oftentimes. And uh, her son, I guess, I don't know. I'm assuming it's her son. I, I, I don't have any information as to, as, to who, as to what their relationship might be, so I'm just going to assume that. Yeah. This, y- this young boy. Yeah, you know, maybe her life fell off the rails and she had a kid young and etc so the son he goes outside he runs across the street he looks at dougie's car and he he sees the explosive charge that is under it in that moment the uh carjackers in the sweet black car blasting uniform speed around the corner and they try to steal dougie's car uh and unbeknownst to them the car is rigged with explosives and <laughs> it blows up and there's like sort of an unintentionally funny shot to me of like the kid like as the explosion happens where it's like yeah where it's like uh <laughs> it's like his eyes go wide and like the wind from the explosion just like blows his hair back <laughs> yeah it is i don't know if it was supposed to be but it, it was <laughs> i don't think it is it's just like it just like looks kind of goofy you know it's like they probably mm-hmm. didn't have the budget to show the actual explosion. So right. they just use this cutaway where you see his like his his face just sort of like glow up orange for a second and his his hair whip back. And, uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of funny. And yeah, this is just this is just getting more into this idea that Lynch loves about suburban decay and mm-hmm. you know his junkie troubled mom sort of being asleep at the wheel while you know nefarious things are are happening all around her so yeah i definitely started to look at her and this you know these scenes as as that as like this is like a personification of neglect and uh while she is passed out her son or this boy is comes very close to blowing up himself um, and instead just witnesses the death of like four people from about 10 feet away all because this lady is all conked out from drinking fucking uh, uh, bourbon and, and smoking cigarettes with her crack lighter. I think that the there's like, if there are allusions to 2008 and the financial like collapse, I think you kind of see it here um, because it's like, this isn't taking place in the, you know, like a rundown, downtown part of the city like this is in a like a a, like a like a building complex or a uh like this sort of like an arrested development style um like big housing project Mm -hmm. and like there's beautiful big houses like all over the place even the one that they're in is like a a very suburban uh like large multi you know like a like just a big house um and i just find it weird that why like she's got a little table 
set up like in the hallway like by the stairs um i don't know why like i don't know why she doesn't just like do her drugs like in the kitchen table like why did she have this one little standing folding table um but yeah i definitely i definitely this time around i'm getting some of those vibes of like it's almost like the blue velvet thing you know it's like uh you have this like perfectly manicured lawn and then you go the further into it you find like a severed ear covered in insects um i feel like that you know and, and that is a very lynchian thing mm-hmm yeah, absolutely. And I think you're dead on to make the connection with the financial crisis here because Mark Frost did very specifically say that uh, setting a bunch of the season in Las Vegas was, was a, a choice inspired directly by that because, you know, there, there were all these homes in Las Vegas that were very nice, um, you know, very, uh, very prim uh, suburban dwellings that were like nonetheless empty and you had this sort of like ghost town effect there and and that's and that's one thing to to note about this is like there the, you don't see like anybody else on the street it's a weirdly still quiet sort of lifeless neighborhood that they live in and all we see is like you know a drug addict her sort of wandering latchkey kid's son and across the street from him is is a place where like you know a prostitute goes to be with her johns right yeah yeah it definitely and and i there's it's there's probably is no accident that it's all having to do with real estate because that is like kind of the backbone of the 2008 like or of this even the stuff leading up to it like the the real estate industry and mm-hmm. like the mortgage subprime mortgage uh crisis and all that like it 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 did result in there yeah there being way more um way more homes than people could afford to live in which obviously results in this interesting decay that you had mentioned before and i think there is something like there's something more unsettling to me about that and like this big empty pristine neighborhood than like if this was all taking place in like some shitty part of town where you hear sirens in the background and there's all kinds of like weird characters it's like nope it's in broad daylight on a sunny day uh in the middle of the burbs that's where all this terrible awful shit's happening so i i love that sentiment yep just totally sterile environment so we get uh here our last scene with jade i believe she's getting her her bright yellow jeep washed maybe she has some sort of deal with the car wash guy because he seems to know that that she's a prostitute he asked her if she has a John in the state of Washington because he finds Cooper's Great Northern key, the 315 key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, it's pure speculation, but maybe he's washing her car in exchange for, you know, some, some favors, perhaps. Uh, I don't know why mm-hmm. the car wash guy w- would have knowledge of, of her being a prostitute other than that. But yeah, pure speculation. She drops it in the mailbox, which was a weird move to me at first but then the more i thought about it it's like well i mean i guess that i mean that might be like one of the surest ways to make sure that it actually gets there right i'm i think that's like standard operating procedure is it i like i i feel like i've heard that yeah like you like i think i've seen it on hotel keys myself 
or even key cards. Yeah, where it's like uh, you can return this just by throwing it in the mailbox because our address is on it. And I don't, I, I don't know that if it would require postage or what, but um, I could have sworn there was something on the 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 key, but I, I might be wrong. Like on the on the uh, Great Northern key itself. Like what? Saying, uh, just drop this in the mailbox. But I might be making that up. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, di- I didn't really look at it, but yeah, this this move uh, of just dropping it in the mailbox oh. here. It yeah, it says if you look on the back of it, it says clean. Pl- clean place reasonably priced and then it says please mail to great northern hotel twin peaks washington it says like the address on it oh so uh, okay i don't know if that means yeah toss toss it in the uh toss it in the the mailbox we'll figure it out it does work though oh yeah it says it it literally says pop in any mailbox we guarantee drop in any mailbox we guarantee posted oh wow okay i totally missed that yeah all right well all right i knew yeah well uh Good on Jade for doing the sensible thing, and uh, uh, goodbye Jade, um, because this mm-hmm. is the last we see of her. Uh, unless you want to count the photos that Jeannie E produces uh, to Dougie in a, in a little bit, uh, it's a funny scene. All right, so the next scene that we get is the long-awaited return to the Double R Diner, and uh, we are introduced to. The great Norma. So good to see Norma again. She's just a delightful character. I'm always, always, always happy to see Norma. I love her. What can I say? I, I, I do too. And I love her relationship with Shelly. And I loved seeing that. Uh, I liked seeing that Shelly was still at the R&R. Uh, not because I, I want her to be doomed to a life as a server for her whole life. But I just loved that there was this like. Maybe I don't know. I read it as like a contentment. Like, mm-hmm. nope, she's still there. She's still working for Norma. They're still very close. It seems now like Shelley's problems are now her daughter's problems, um, which we'll obviously get into later in the scene. Um, whereas Shelley made me feel like, okay, Shelley, maybe, maybe she has a little bit of peace for herself, even though her daughter is obviously not benefiting from that same peace. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is we we see basically the same cycles repeating themselves with regards to Shelley and her daughter. Shelley's terrible mm-hmm. taste in men uh, has definitely rubbed off onto Becky. We see Becky showing up here. She asks Shelley for money. We can't really hear what she's saying. Like we hear it very faintly, but we see Shelley sort of reaching for her money, and Norma is looking on just very disapprovingly at this whole scene. Eat. If you listen closely, you can hear she is saying he's looking for a job, like he'll find a job. Like it's all about Steven not having money or them not having money. Like, mm-hmm. um, And I was, I felt like Norma because I was like, she, and she makes the, you know, the, the point, if you don't help her now, it's going to get a lot harder to help her later. Like Shelly is clearly enabling her problems. Mm-hmm. Um, like especially since she said this is the third time in two weeks um right there is definitely an edible thing going on like just like she loves her so much she's going to continue to fund her horrible uh habits whether or not she knows about them but yeah i think um we can talk more about it i think that these string of scenes are like some of the most disturbing to to me personally of, of at least of this episode uh in what in what way well, uh, it's more so when 
she goes into the, when Becky goes into the car and meets Steven and she's just like the character of Becky is miserable. You can see it in her face. You can see it in her face after she kisses Steven. There is this like, just, just like this really, I don't know, desperate or just like resigned for someone who's so young, uh, just this very resigned kind of, um, awful look that she has on her face and knowing what she's involved in and like how she's married to this guy and they're begging for money. Then they get high. And I remember reading on Reddit and stuff, people were talking about how this like shot of her face to like the, to this nice, like kind of like doo-woppy song was like this beautiful scene. They're like, Oh, that was such a great scene. Like that was amazingly shot. It was beautiful. And like, I agree. It was very well shot, but I ain't get beauty from that at all. I got like the creeps of the creeps because she's displaying complete depression and like bitterness and horrible sadness. And then she gets high and then she's blissful. The only bliss this poor girl ever feels is when she's high. Like that's what this scene showed me. And I I was really off put by the amount of people being like, oh my god, oh, she's gonna be the next Laura, <laughs> as if that's like some fucking like term of endearment. It, 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 as you know, and she's also very clearly in a an abusive relationship, uh, physically and emotionally. Uh, just the whole thing from top to bottom really made me sad and uncomfortable, uh, especially because I went into this whole thing like, oh look at look at. Shelly and Norma. I love those characters. And then it's just like, yeah, well, guess what? Shelly's daughter is married to this complete worm of a dude, and she is completely, absolutely miserable and has vices, um, just like all the characters in the show. I, But I, I really... The, the, like, washed-out colors on her face uh, and the... She does have weird... Like, she's laughing, and then she has these weird brief moments of a straight face back to just like hysterical laughter. Um, and if you like, if you've just like known people that have drug addiction, or if you've been unfortunate enough to have one yourself, you like know that, that, that high that they're experiencing right there is really a symbol for like, like that's how happy, like a normal person should be if they see a cute dog. Like <laughs> she's only accessing this, like any joy in her, in her life, apparently from what we see of her, when she is doing lines with her terribly, horribly creepy husband, uh, five seconds after soliciting $73 from her mother or whatever. I, I was, I was grossed out by this whole thing the first time I saw it. And then like just doubly grossed out when I saw people like lionizing it or like, or maybe, maybe I'm just reading too much into it. Maybe the people just think it looks fine. It looks cool. And it does. I agree. Uh, in the music, works it does give you this vibe of happiness like of course that's what it does but given what we know about david lynch and his thoughts on drug-induced happiness and what it leads to um i thought it was extremely ominous yeah this shot of becky looking towards the sky this overhead shot here you know just high enjoying life it's really the only i would say even marginally happy moment with her which you're right is um it's sad it's 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 really unfortunate and 
honestly, my first thought when I saw this this shot, which honestly is probably one of the most iconic shots of the entire show. Mm-hmm. This scene right here is set to uh, the song is I Love How You Love Me by the Paris Sisters. My first thought was, oh, she's going to die. <laughs> Like that, yeah. that was, that, yeah. that was my immediate thought. I was like, okay, well. Like in this, in this scene, she was going to die? No, like in this show. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like I just had this, just like this intuition watching the scene, like, well, this is not going to end well for you at all. And I, I figured it would probably have something to do with Steven, most likely. It's clear that she probably does have a drug problem. It's, I get the sense that it's probably not to the extent that Steven does just based on how appalled she is by how much Coke he did that day. Right. When he pulls out that vial and it's like practically empty, the look that she gives him, it's like, she just like stares holes in his head. Yeah. Like she just gives him the longest, most disturbed stare (laughs) ever when he, when he talks about the fact that he did all this Coke on the day that he's like supposedly going around having job interviews and whatnot. Um, but you know, that doesn't stop her from partaking in it herself. You know, she's obviously enabling him just as, as he's clearly enabling her and yeah, Norma and Shelly clearly have some idea of what's going on here. And there is that line that you mentioned, if you don't help her now, it's going to get a lot harder to help her. I think that that could be a reference to drug use. Maybe they have some idea that that's happening. It could also have to do with um, domestic violence as well. Yeah, I think it's a truism no matter what, when someone is involved in something like a like a a, a bad relationship, whether or not it's abusive, like a, a bad, unhealthy relationship. Uh, the longer it goes on, the more the tendrils of that relationship, uh, the deeper they sink in. And it's so much harder to remove yourself from that person or those habits. And obviously Norma and, and Shelly are no strangers to to that and, and seeing young people spiral out of control. But they've also seen, you know, like Bobby turn himself around and, and end up being a, a police officer or... Uh, apparently Mike, who was a little bit of a shithead, is now just hawking <laughs> used cars, being addicted to Steven. So, like, Twin Peaks as a town is no stranger to, to this. And I got it as, um, you know, it was a shade. It was like, here's another shade of Twin Peaks. Um, another one that, that I still think harkens back to Blue Velvet, which is almost like, in my head, it's Blue Velvet's like almost like, proto twin peaks it's like a it's like a little piece of where the idea for that came from um or or yeah or because even if you look at the the pilot of twin peaks it is so soapy and it's so it's so americana right off the bat you know even even from like sarah palmer just calling to laura like laura oh laura like it's just very kind of like kitschy like it has this Americana feel that is immediately subverted by everything else that happens. Um, and so like another thing is like, they're, they're not doing Coke at Friday night at, you know, 10 PM nope. at the roadhouse. It's like the middle of a job interview day, mm-hmm. five minutes after soliciting money from your mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I, I too got the like, wow, looks like Becky is the new Laura, but it's like a, a very, resign like Laura's a tragic character like among the most tragic characters 
of anything I've ever seen. And I don't know what like the what the community is like. I mean, I'm sure no one is thinking like, oh, Becky seems like she's having a great time. Um, but that that scene, the, this scene in general was very prickly. The first time I saw it, it made me really uncomfortable. That just the that song that's playing, I love how you love me. Like I love that song. That's a yeah. great song. It's really, it's really like simple. Um, and there is this like, I don't know, maybe it's cause I've never had like a hard drug addiction, but I'm definitely a pothead. And <laughs> I, I've had moments where, you know, you're not feeling great at all. And then you do, you get high and you feel good in that moment. And there is this, this like simplicity to it and you're like ah now i can finally sit here and enjoy i love how you love me by the paris sister <laughs> like now the like the, 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 the like everything is sort of like simplified and, and 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 uh i can just be normal and that that feeling is the throes of addiction like that is being like you know and so if you you know, ex, ex, uh extrapolate on that and and blow it up into like we're doing coke at you know, two o'clock in the afternoon in the parking lot of my mom's work, um, so that we can feel normal. It's like, yeah, very, very distressing to me. Yeah. It's a really it's a really rich scene and I think we we gain a lot of insight as to just the really dysfunctional tragic relationship that Becky has with her husband and that Shelley has with, with Becky and uh, I, I think that the stuff that we see from here on out with regards to uh, this this plot thread here really bears that out. And, and also, <laughs> just while we're here on, on the subject of that song, I Love How You Love Me, you know, we, we, we could read into that too as being like a very obvious sort of ironic counterpoint to what actually happens in the scene where it's like the way that Steven is showing his love for his wife is by like, you know, letting her like do a line off of his hand, even though he just right. forced her to go in there and ask her mother, who, you know, is a server at a diner who presumably doesn't have much money t to help them out. Right. Yeah. A lot going on here. And it's also one of those songs that now that it's been used in this setting, it's impossible, I think, to to not imagine this scene when you hear it. You know, it's kind of like My Prayer by The Platters. It's like, I cannot hear that song mm -hmm. now without also imagining a dude's skull being cracked open by a woodsman. Yes. Lynch just has a way of doing that. It's really uh, uncanny, I feel like. So yeah, great scene. So from there we get a couple of really... I don't know, kind of inconsequential scenes. Uh, we see Dougie in the elevator. He's standing facing the uh, the back wall, which is a, a huge social faux pas, just uh, ignoring all the social <laughs> norms. Everyone's really pissed off at him uh, when he doesn't move. I love it. it this, is a really, this is actually a really good comedic moment right here. We meet up again with Hawk and Andy in the evidence room just for a very brief scene. They are looking for more Native American material. Really not much to note here. N not too much going on in this scene. I do enjoy the set design here. 
their their table is just sort of strewn with uh, a lot of just Twin Peaksy paraphernalia. There's like uh, Twin Peaks Sheriff Station coffee mugs, like half-eaten donuts, five or six different double R to go cups for some reason. Just a just a good little Twin Peaksy scene, but we don't really glean much information here. But where we do glean a lot of information, Dylan, is in the following scene where we get uh, just an absolutely delightful reveal of our good friend, Dr. Jacoby, or should we say Dr. Amp? Dr. Amp. This, this reveal to me is bigger than who killed Laura Palmer. <laughs> <laughs> What's up with those shovels? I was so fucking curious. And hey, I had no idea <laughs> of what we were about to get. And I, I, I'm so glad that it was none of the weird shit that I thought it was going to be. And instead was uh, Dr. Amp. Listen. Whatever you want to refer to Dr. Amp as. Listen, the amount of joy that cocaine brings Becky, that was what I was experiencing during this scene as it unfolded with Dr. Amp. Like, this is just so beyond brilliant and unexpected and delightful just this rebranding of dr jacoby as like this <laughs> this ranting alex jones-esque online sensation who just like beams his anti-authority messaging into the residents of twin peaks was just like the most inspired of character turns i feel like I have just—I mean, I have no idea where where they come up with any of this shit. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. To like, but it seems so um, homogenous. Like, yep, that's probably what Doctor Jacoby will be up to, mm-hmm. and Nadine and Jerry Horn would probably be yeah. huge fans of this show. Yeah, exactly. Anyone else in Twin Peaks? Yeah, exactly. And we see Jerry sparking up a joint, getting a yep. good chuckle at at Dr. Amp's gag here where he has like a hand, a little tiny hand uh, attached to his middle finger. Jerry, Jerry really loves that. That, Like that, Mm -hmm. that joke right there is just laser focused at somebody like Jerry Horn uh, smoking weed in the woods. Yeah. Like you said, Nadine is just, just watching very approvingly. She really buys into Dr. Amp's messaging, which I don't, like as far as far as Dr. Amp's like specific political leanings, I don't think that we can really intuit exactly what they are. Like I don't know if we can necessarily say that they're right wing or left wing. It's just sort of like I said, sort Me of a either. sort of a general anti authority worldview where he's like blaming the government for all these like widespread illnesses like eczema for some mm-hmm. reason. Which is, like, very reminiscent of, like, the whole, you know, Alex Jones, they're turning the frogs, gay! Sure, yeah. Yeah, it just made me think of that whole thing. Um, It definitely is a, uh, it's definitely a nondescript anger thing. You know, that I was, because I'm, like, I'm not really, like, aligned politically, necessarily. Like, I, I mean, I, like, I wouldn't consider myself, like, I'm not a registered republican or democrat or anything like that so like all my political opinions end up being like hey this person on this board of monsanto was also like in this like cabinet of government uh so like i was like listening very closely to what he was saying because i was like is this is he about to like touch on some of my own conspiracies that i like to entertain in my head um but it seems like he's he's supposed to be this 
appealing, like rambling, angry force. And the more you listen to what he's saying, the more he's saying nothing. He's he's saying bad people are doing bad things by my shovels, mm. which is which is effectively Alex Jones. Like yep. that is or that's Infowars. And like is because I. I'm just like a, a skeptic, I guess. Like I don't really like take the news at face value. So when it was like two thousand and like three or four and I found InfoWars, I was like, Yeah, <laughs> me too. Yeah. Because I was fucking fourteen. And uh I like bit on it, obviously. And then once you realize like what's going on and what Al- who Alex Jones is and like how he's really just again, not ever saying anything uh, and always referring to uh you know, referring to the documents uh, that we never see, that no one ever sees. Dr. Amp just going on and on about how, yeah, it, how, you know, you're going to end up, you're going to poison the food and then like all the children's snacks have, have poisoned in them. And um, just this like fear mongering that amounts to, hey, buy my shovel. Uh, <laughs> which yeah exactly like his the golden shovels it's it's the the equivalent of alex jones is like hey br- buy my my brain pills that will will turn you into like uh a red pilled super genius you know what i mean right it is, it's yeah. it's the same it's the same ideal it's 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 you know it's snake oil salesman re yeah it is and and, and it's actually like I thought it was a bit of a more nuanced attack on that than I've seen. Because I think, like, Alex Jones and conspiracy theory in general is an easy target. Like, yeah, there's things that are just patently absurd and ridiculous. But I think that there's something being touched on here that, like, there is an appeal to that, like, that anti-authoritarian, like, those ramblings. Like, in just something that sounds good. Something that makes you go, nod your head and go, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, I, I'm, I'm on that. Um, and then seeing, like, Jerry smoking a joint in the woods, I felt personally attacked <laughs> because of all the joints I have smoked and funny, weird conspiracy videos I've watched on the internet. <laughs> um, but I w- was just, like, watching this happen was just so delighted at how um, ridiculously absurd it is. And I should, I guess, probably make a statement, like, I don't watch InfoWars. <laughs> like, like I'm not an Alex okay. Jones guy. Um, <laughs> I, I I think he's a, a, a complete piece of shit. But I loved that this was almost like a a look at his appeal and and like who who from Twin Peaks would fall for this? Jerry Horn and Nadine. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then I don't know who else, but there's those two are just like uh, just the perfect the perfect two. Yeah, exactly. It's. You know, he's he's ranting about all these things that are, like, compelling from a certain perspective. Like, yeah, you know what? We are being screwed. We are being fucked. You know, the, the government is trying to screw us over at all times. Uh, but then at the end, it's just like, oh, this is about the shovels. That's the true <laughs> you know? evil of it. That's the, to me, yeah. that's the true evil of Alex Jones. Or maybe not. That's not. Maybe that's not the true evil, but an evil of his. Yeah, there's is plenty that... of evil to go around with uh, regards yeah. to Alex Jones, I would argue. But... He he uh he's actually like whether whether he's like a fucking like like a plant or any or I think he's just some asshole but he's like it it muddies the water because like there are horrible terrible conspiracies happening at any given moment and there's a lot of truth in those platitudes that that Doctor Amp is uh, expressing but yeah they they ultimately amount to buy my shovel. Uh, which is what you what you get with almost all of those 
Alex Jones types, those those people who, yeah, there's, um, it's a function of capitalism in a sense, I guess. It's like people yep. will keep clicking it and people will, will follow in. And then the way that people show their support in their society is through buying shit. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a good commentary, like above all else. Yep. Yeah, it's it's uh it's effective commentary and also just really uh fun and Russ Tamblin really just bites into these monologues uh, in a really juicy way that is just great to watch. Yeah, when he when he gets all red faced and then has to stop and then takes a sip and uh-huh. he's like huckleberry extract with spring water <laughs> boiled, none of that yeah. South American acai blueberry bullshit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because he's yelling, he's like poison. <laughs> poison and he's like yeah. running out of breath and he's red in the face and he just has to take that that little uh that huckleberry extract sip from the uh the <laughs> clear artesian springs of whitetail peak yep of course yeah and nice dose of xenophobia for you oh yeah for sure and his whole setup here is really worth remarking upon as well his whole <laughs> I don't I don't even know how to describe exactly what his technological uh setup is, but it's like he's got like hand cranks combined with like various forms of digital technology and it's just like he's just like a mad scientist of some sort. I don't even know I don't even know how to describe it. And he also has just <laughs> I noticed this time a mason jar that's filled nearly to the brim with cigarette butts. Which is funny, considering how much he has talked about poison and the government giving us all these all these diseases and whatnot. It's just very it's a funny little uh, funny little detail, I think. Yeah, I think there's there is meant to be like no ambiguity that he is a complete uh, snake oil salesman and is yeah, taking he's, he's full advantage. Huckster. Yeah, he's a huckster. Um, yeah, and and luckily we're gonna get quite a few more check ins with Doctor Amp, so. Um, so we get a little bit of progression from, I guess, what we might call the main plot, the Cooper slash Mr. C-centric plot here, where we go to the Pentagon. I uh, believe this is the only scene of the Pentagon. We see Lieutenant Cynthia Knox. She walks in and she meets Colonel Davis, played by uh, the great Ernie Hudson of Ghostbusters fame. Would have really loved to see more of him in this season. Uh, but this is all we get from him and she informs him that they've just recorded the 16th instance of Major Briggs's fingerprints being found uh, despite the fact that he has been gone and was like presumed dead for for several years now very interesting I guess maybe we can assume that Major Briggs has just been up to all sorts of shit in the meanwhile you know maybe he's just sort of like found a way to um come in and out of the uh the zone quote unquote uh who knows what he's been up to it could be that yeah i thought it might have had something to do with maybe he he because there's a whole lot of fingerprints business uh later in the season that can get kind of confusing but i Mm -hmm. i i thought that it would could have been something like their you know, Mr. C or whoever has been like using the, uh, like the, the body of major Briggs or something, some, some way of like putting his prints in these different parts of the, of the world, just to like add to the subterfuge of what he's doing and have these people off on like all these different, um, 
investigations that have like literally nothing at all to do with what he's actually doing. Um, and if he's just like has access to major Briggs because he has in one, one way or another killed him or captured him or somehow, cause we don't really, aside from his floating head saying blue rose, we don't really see major Briggs, uh, do anything in 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 this season uh he is i guess i guess the sorry i was gonna say the only thing that kind of counteracts that is the fact that we hear bill hastings say that he met the major which we assume would happen pretty recently and this is like before he's been beheaded and all that stuff and they, Mm -hmm. they say that these instances of major briggs's fingerprints have been happening for for years so right I mean, I don't know. That it seems to me that Major Briggs has been doing stuff while he's still uh alive. Yeah, I think he is he might be like I don't know that he is dead. Like he might be like Philip Jeffries or Cooper where they're not really people in the in the right. sense no, of he, like Yeah, he he's not dead, but like he's I think based on what Bill Hastings has said he he has been uh, a head attached to a body until very recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, ag- again, just one of many ridiculous uh, sentences that you have to say with regards to this show. <laughs> right. But yeah, um, yeah. It's I don't know. It's it's weird. I think, like we've said before, the whole major Briggs plotline is like one of the most difficult to to piece together in a sensible way. So yeah. In any case. Ernie Hudson sends Lieutenant Knox out to South Dakota. Yeah, that's it. everything so far uh, with regards to this plot line is is happening according to to plan from Mister C's perspective. I think we can assume um, because yeah. the discovery of Major Briggs's body would attract the attention of the higher ups, um, which would eventually uh, come back down to Garden Cole and Albert and all that. So. Right. All right. So from there, we check back in at the roadhouse. This is not the end of the episode, uh, but we do check in here where uh, we get a little, really an all-star band here called Trouble playing the song Snake Eyes. We're going to camp out here for uh, the music once again. I think we're turning into like, this is like the 119 music corner where we just like talk about music for a little bit. I like it. Yeah, it's good. And so this band is composed of uh, Riley Lynch, aka David Lynch's son, who is playing the. Uh, he's, he's playing like a red. It's like a strat, like a Stratocaster or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Riley Lynch was also. He was also a production assistant on the show. Oh, okay. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, he he shows up a few times in the in the behind the scenes footage. On drums is Dean Hurley who was the music supervisor for the show. Oh, okay. And he, yeah. And he has some like ambient stuff that is, is pretty interesting uh, as well to check out. Mm. And most interesting to me is the guy playing saxophone is a, a dude named Alex Zhang Hung Tai, who has made uh, a couple records that I really love under the name dirty beaches. And, I was I flipped my lid when I saw him here. Like I just thought this was so damn cool. Like such an inspired bit of uh of musical casting here. I think he he now makes music under the name Last Lizard, but 
Um, cool. Yeah, highly recommend Dirty Beaches. Super cool to see him show up in this little uh, this little band here. Um, so and is, I dig this song, Snake Eyes. Is Trouble a an incarnation for four Twin Peaks? Like, were they all just like involved in the production and then i i think so like i think they i think they i get the sense they formed this band specifically for this this scene here i don't i don't know if they have any other music but uh, i dig this song though i think it's actually a perfect soundtrack to uh what we see from richard coming up here yeah the really the wailing saxophone and the uh there's a really cool kind of guitar tone that i think riley lynch gets where he's doing these kind of these low single notes that almost sound like someone stepping in mud they're really cool mm-hmm. um one thing that i've noticed and this isn't even meant to be a dig but we're not hearing the live performances we're definitely hearing you don't think so well we definitely weren't hearing the live performance for um for the cactus blossoms that's note for note the, the recording it's the same thing this on this tune there's a bass uh in the mix but there's no bass player hmm. like they're playing there's two guitarists sax and drums and then maybe there might be a bass player off you know off stage but yeah that was and not that uh, i mean i'm not bothered by that at all i just it was just an observation that i meant i was like wait there's no bassist and i was like is one of these guys using a baritone guitar as a bass player or as a bass but no they're both they're both just regular six string guitars and i was listening with my headphones in the mix and there's very audibly a bass um could be a loop you know what I mean? Could be anything. Right. But yeah, I I mean I the only one I would say for sure is the Cactus Blossoms one. That that's that is the recording. Yeah, no, I, I think um I think pretty much all of them are recording. Actually, hmm. I don't know. I'm I'm questioning that now because I'm not sure. I could swear that the uh, the nine inch nails performance was live, but that one probably is because there is no studio recording of that, I don't think. Um, um there is. Of- of that yeah but it's the studio version is different than that because like that that was a band playing it whereas the nine inch nails studio version is just nine inch nails right it's just his production right but what i'm saying is like i'm not certain that um i'm not certain that it's not the same recording though oh okay it might it might be um i'm not sure i for some reason i thought that maybe it was different but i don't know i really have no idea the reason that I, I felt like this song might be live was just because I was watching Riley Lynch, like just doing, um, I was just like watching his fingers and it yeah. seemed like, I don't know, like some of the stuff on the track sounds improvisational to me. Yeah. And as far as like some of his, his, uh, like his, his wild, uh, guitar stuff. And I was watching him and it, it checked out as far as what he was doing with his hands, but it's, but maybe that's just like, maybe it's not improvised at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it very well may be that most, if not all of them are live. Uh, the, the one that really like tipped me off, though, was the Cactus Blossom one, just because I've heard the studio recording so many times, and it's the mix. Like, it's not the instrumentation. It's like the mix is the same. Like, the, uh, the, the sound quality of the pedal steel is that of in a studio, not a close mic, not close mic'd in a club. It just has a different sound. Um, right, right. But again, it's this is not consequential to me whatsoever. It's literally just like facts. <laughs> or sure. Like, which yeah. is a thing I may have noticed. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, regardless, I think that this song does provide a, uh, a fittingly anxious and dissonant soundtrack to our introduction to a real piece of shit, Richard Horn. 
Oh yeah, big daddy piece of shit, perhaps. Or actually son yeah. of big daddy piece of shit. Yep. Like even though Mr. C is clearly like like we've said, he's the mastermind behind uh the majority of the the evil that we see in the season, I think that the scenes that we get from Richard are like even more viscerally uncomfortable and horrible than anything we see from Mr. C. This scene here of him groping and choking and assaulting Charlotte and obviously the the infamous scene with uh, his grandmother. Those scenes are like just so much rougher to watch than pretty much anything we see from Mr. C. Yeah, I think Mr. C is most like disturbing moment might be when he kills forget her name already uh in daria. episode two daria yeah uh and just him him punching her and all that stuff it's very visceral very uncomfortable to watch but there is at not even at least there just is a there's a sense of control that mr c has uh for as not that that's a good thing in any way but it's just a sense of control uh he is measured in how terrible and evil he is whereas richard horn is just this ball of untethered complete just like lack of humanity i mean david lynch knows how to make a bad guy he really does he knows how to make you hate someone right away um but even just like the implications of his character from the first thing you see is him smoking at a non-smoking sign the second which, scene, yeah, which as any um as any Instagram photographer will tell you is the uh, the ultimate sign of a badass. Yeah, I mean it's just he's he's got edge, man. He's super edgy. Uh, <laughs> and then the second thing you see is him paying off the Chad, the the dirty cop. And then the third thing you see is him, uh, yeah, like just groping and choking and just threatening this young girl who all she wanted was a, a light <laughs> for her cigarette. Um, mm-hmm. and he is just a, I mean, it's just very well acted, but just such a, uh, like you, there is no sense of control from that character. You, you like really, like I felt like Richard Horn was going to die in a dip, like much different. Like I thought he would just like fuck up and like get shot. And like, like he didn't seem like he wasn't measured or careful. He's, he's, He's like complete horribleness for the sake of horribleness. Like there's no end game. Mm. There's just this, uh, just this like black hole of a, of a person that, uh, much like his father or, or Bob or whatever seems to really feed on, uh, the distress and, and anguish that he causes other people. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you, you touched on briefly, the way that Richard is sort of dispatched in, in the series. I think that the show has a um, has an uncanny tendency to tell you what it thinks about its characters by the way that it sort of dispatches with them. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think it's an accident that a lot of the evil characters in the show are just sort of very unceremoniously killed. And I think Richard might be the most memorable of all. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it, it is a very just sudden, abrupt, shocking end. There's no sentimentality. There's no romanticism to it whatsoever. There's no dwelling. Mm-hmm. It isn't mentioned again. Like, nobody cares. Not even his father, who, uh, who, <laughs> who did leads it? him yeah. into this trap. Um, Richard Horn is just, 
he's a complete piece of shit there's nothing redeeming about him there's no. no shade of gray he is just an absolute terror in the community it's worth considering what richard's purpose is in the show considering the way in which he is dispatched and the fact that he doesn't really have too much bearing on the like quote-unquote main plot of the show my my read on it is that it's just another way of showing the degree to which mr c has just sort of poisoned the well in twin peaks right like by doing this horrible thing to audrey and forcing her to give birth to this demon seed he's essentially just ensuring the the fact that there will be misery in twin peaks as a result of this guy for for many years to come yeah Yeah, it's almost as he he as a character represents all of that trauma and all of the terribleness and and maybe it's it's a case we can make later uh but we you know we do see him at the roadhouse and we it's unclear what the connection between audrey in the roadhouse is if there is any at all but i think to understand you know richard horn's place in like the broader perspective of the show other than being like just a completely unredeemable negative asshole i think you have to sort of have a bit of an understanding of audrey's connection to uh the goings-on of twin peaks wherever she is if she's even on the same plane of existence as anyone else in the show uh i don't know but i feel like there's got to be some sort of connection between them yeah we don't we obviously don't know exactly what's up with audrey but i think it's safe to assume that her life did not exactly play out the way that she thought it would and i think it's probably safe to say that being forced to give birth to this horrible awful little shit probably had something to do with her life turning out not so great i think that's probably safe to assume right so yeah we uh we are in for many more unpleasant scenes with richard horn from there we get one of my absolute favorite scenes in this show and that is the phone call scene with mr c Lynch has a way that I find very magical where he just sort of throws out proper nouns and we don't even necessarily know what they are, but they just sort of send the imagination flying. And the Mr. Strawberry is a perfect example of that, in my opinion. Yeah. Like, we don't know who or what this Mr. Strawberry is and we don't need to know at all. All we need to know is that Mr. C's knowledge of this person is horrifying to Warden Murphy and this actor who plays Warden Murphy does an amazing job of just like looking totally disturbed about the fact that Mr. C knows anything about Mr. Strawberry. Yeah, the change in face. Yeah, he sort of, it looks like his his heart just drops into his stomach and he he covers his his mouth with his face in horror. Like, he is really freaked out by this. It's also another example here of, like we talked about before, just Mr. C's really, really 
bizarre relationship with technology. <laughs> like he gets his phone call and then he just sort of like mashes a bunch of buttons and it sends the entire circuitry of the prison system into like uh, a tizzy. Right. It's re- it's really it's really bizarre. Yeah, I didn't know if he was supposed to be like he's not necessarily making a phone call so much so much as he is manipulating the electrical current going through this phone to reach his destination where you can deliver his message. Um, and the significance of like it's sending the whole prism systems like on, like just making it go crazy. I don't, I wonder how much of that is like meant to just be very stark and just in like unsettling to watch because I, it reminded me of the fire walk with me scene where Mike is screaming at Leland slash Bob and there's all the car alarms going off and there's just so much like chaotic noise and energy, almost like it's a, uh, like a front. It's like, everyone's going to be focusing on this and it it, it will uh, distract from whatever the, the meaning of the conversation is. Um, cause it's, it, I don't think it's clear that the people, watching here mr say even say the cow jumped over the moon because we get like a kind of close closer shot of that i believe of him saying that it's just like and who knows how much of it is maybe he's doing it just to frighten everybody uh and be a dick but there yeah there's a lot going on here yeah you're right it could just be to scare everybody in the prison and just let him know like hey guess what guys like you're not as in control of me as you would like to believe Mm-hmm. And it could also be just to cover the sound of him uh, relaying the message, the cow jumped over the moon. And if we're judging just based solely on the cause and effect editing principle here, we can assume that this message, the cow jumped over the moon, is what causes the box in Buenos Aires to blink twice and then shrink into a little... I don't know what you would call it. It's like a lot of people think it's like a lodge material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It turns into, it, it reminded me of a tulpa seed. Um, it wasn't right. perfectly round or anything, but it did have that gold shine. And we have seen characters, people dissolve into this thing. Right. That's, that's where my head immediately went. Right. Yeah. And I really personally, th- this is my belief. I, I think that, this this box is just like it's it's a waypoint between um it's a, it's a means of communication between Mr. C and his cronies um like Lorraine who we see text the box and Duncan Todd and in fact I believe it's the next episode where we see Duncan Todd's screen just sort of uh become covered with this red square and I, I personally believe that it, it has to do with, with this box. Like, Mr. C's message to the box causes it to, to shrink away and, and relay this, this, uh, this box to Duncan Todd, which Duncan Todd knows uh, means that he must go into the safe and remove these photos and send them to Ike the Spike. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I, I, I believe that Lorraine texting to to the box is like the signal for the hit didn't go through you know, you know what i mean like cooper is right. still alive right mr c probably has a means of 
receiving this signal that we probably don't see. And I think that he used this opportunity to manipulate the technology that was readily available to him to sort of continue his his plan. Now, obviously, that is far from clear cut. And people have varying ideas about the significance of the box and what it might mean, particularly with regards to Philip Jeffries, etc. But that is that is personally my read on it. Yeah, I, I actually I like that. And I think it makes sense that when she sends Argent to you see the box blink twice. Um, mm-hmm. And then when when Mr. C says the cow jumped over the moon, you see it blink twice and then disappear. So it's almost like, OK, it has it, it was there to serve this purpose and now it is going to expire um, and or then you know, turn into whatever turned into and then trigger the series of events that alerts Duncan Todd to what he has to do. That makes a lot of sense to me. My, my, if I had to go on like with my original thought that it was connected to Philip Jeffries in some way, again, it's not clear, you know, what Philip Jeffries is or who he's to what end he is working. Uh, I mean, it seems a little pretty kind of clear that he is uh, in on some kind of plan involving Mike Cooper, Gordon Cole and right. um you know all in the in the fireman but so that made me think perhaps like that that box thing was this like you know this conduit you know message sending thing but that it, it itself was planted there by quote unquote the good guys and it's there to sort of like receive and uh you know, transmit those messages to the fireman so that he can know how to subvert the plans. The just the it's shrinking down into whatever material it shrinks down into. I think is like massively significant to what it is, right. um, and its resemblance to Atulpa made me wonder if there is if there's just like some connection to that, and then maybe the the phone call with Judy quote-unquote Judy, uh, that Mr. C has um, making it clear that there is someone there is someone working against him with regards to his communications. Yeah, it's not unreasonable to suspect that it could have something to do with Philip Jeffries and could act as some sort of means of communication with the outside world. Um, we do know that Gordon Cole probably has some sort of line with of communication with Philip Jeffries, if only for the fact that we know that Ray Monroe is working with the FBI and also somehow has connection with Philip Jeffries as well. So, may, you know, maybe they're all working together and it's, you know, it's, <laughs> look, it's definitely not out of the question is my point. Like it's nothing is so, is so cut and dry here. So, right. So then we finish up here. We get a closing scene that I really love. It's Dougie touching the feet of the sheriff statue. Security guard tells him there's no loitering here, but Doug- Dougie is just mesmerized by you know this towering authority figure here. And I really love the song that's playing here. It's called Windswept, and it's by Johnny Jewell from Chromatics. 
and it's one of my favorite pieces of music in the return i love it yeah it's very for, for like the fake out ending that we get with the roadhouse and then to get these these few scenes afterwards and then ending with ending on that with that song i just thought it was like it was i think the first time that i wasn't i wasn't like mad that it was over because i was like you know it felt like you got a bonus after uh, after the the roadhouse scenes and then ending on that that very curious statue um yeah i thought it was great yeah just very melancholy feel uh here Mm -hmm. and uh the next episode actually picks up exactly at this point with the with the same song playing so right yeah so that does it for part five just an epic episode yeah i think you the rubber starts to meet the road here on this episode with a lot of this stuff we're we're obviously introduced to a trove of new characters um and some new plots Uh, i think this is a good episode for like the character of the return like there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of style which i mentioned before but there's also a lot of like this where i don't know i started to feel really connected to this season as as an entity unto itself and not the third season of twin peaks Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely this is where i think the identity for much of the rest of the season is established and uh yeah so that's gonna do it for us like always you can find us on twitter at 119 podcasts you can email us like we mentioned at 119podcast at gmail.com you can find me on twitter at strenuous orb and you can find dylan at piff dylan so yeah that does it thank you so much for listening once again uh we we hope you're enjoying these episodes so far we're we're definitely having a lot of fun recording them and uh we'll see you guys for part six later peace